All right, well, good morning, church, and happy Easter to you. And listen, if you're new here today and have no idea who I am, my name is Will Franco, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And we are so glad, if you're tuning in, we are so glad that you are tuning in on Easter Sunday. I personally couldn't have picked a better day for you and your family to tune in. And so we are so glad you are here. Now, before I jump in this morning, I want to begin by addressing uh, the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that on this Easter Sunday, I am here and you are there, wherever there might be. And one of the things that I've seen um, over the past several weeks as we've been in this quarantine is I've seen different politicians and different uh, news channels and even on social media, I have seen this, this phrase, this, this concept of this Easter is going to be unique because Easter is canceled. On this Easter 2020, Easter is canceled. And I, what I want to do right here on, on the front end is I want to clarify something. I want to make something crystal clear. Easter is not canceled. It might be different, but Easter cannot be canceled. Easter is not canceled. Grace is not canceled. Love is not canceled. Hope is not canceled. Resurrection is not canceled. Easter cannot be canceled. It might be different, but it cannot be canceled. And praise be to God that temporary circumstances have no bearing whatsoever on eternal realities. Let me go ahead and say that again. Praise be to God that temporary circumstances have no bearing whatsoever on eternal realities. Regardless of what's happening in our world today, the tomb is still empty and the throne is still occupied. And one of the things that makes me excited is that uh, about this, it's almost like a, a bittersweet Sunday because on the one hand, I miss you guys. You know, I'm an extrovert and I miss you guys and I want to be in community with you, right? On, on the one hand, I wish that this room was full and I got to see all your beautiful faces and all your, you know, Easter outfits. I'm wearing my best Easter outfit right now, right? So on the one hand, I, I miss the fact that we are not celebrating what people would call a normal Easter. But yet, on the other hand, on the other hand, I feel that on this Easter Sunday, we have an opportunity to go back to our roots. We have an opportunity to get back to the basics. And here's what I mean. The first Easter Sunday uh, didn't have uh, 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 Easter eggs. The, the first Easter Sunday didn't have a bunny jumping around. The, the first Easter Sunday didn't have people dressed in their Sunday best gathered in a big auditorium. Uh, the first Easter Sunday didn't have the up from the grave he arose song, right? The first Easter Sunday was very different from every other Sunday we've ever experienced except for this one. I would say that this Sunday, this Easter Sunday is probably the most similar Easter that we've ever had in comparison to that first Easter Sunday. Why? Because God's people were spread out. They were in a time of waiting 
And they then found out that Jesus had resurrected and the news of his resurrection resulted in rejoicing. And get this, it resulted in them not gathering together to sing songs. It resulted in them going out to share the good news of Jesus. And so I would argue that in many ways we are getting back to our roots. We are going back to the, ba- to our ba- to the basis, to our basics. I came across an article this week that said one of the things that this pandemic is doing is it is stripping away consumer Christianity because really the only things that we have right now as far as church goes is we have teaching, we have worship, and we have prayer, and we have evangelism. In other words, we have been stripped down to the most basic elements of Christianity. And so in many ways, this Sunday is bittersweet because even though it's different, we are getting to go back to the basics. We are getting back to our roots. And even though this Easter was unexpected, right? It's a very unexpected Easter. I would argue that Easter was even more unexpected in the original story. That, that, that if resurrection, if it, none of us plan to be here today celebrating Easter the way we are celebrating. But I can tell you, no matter how unexpected it feels to us, it doesn't even hold a candle to how unexpected it was for the original disciples when they found out that Jesus Christ had conquered the grave. Here's what I want to do this morning. As, as we prepare ourselves uh, for Easter Sunday, as we, as we worship God on this resurrection Sunday, What I want to do today on this very unique and different Easter Sunday is I want to look at Easter from a very unique and different perspective. And here's what I mean. This morning, what I want to do is instead of looking at Resurrection Sunday through the lens of Good Friday, what I want to do instead is I want to look at Resurrection Sunday through the lens of Silent Saturday. Silent Saturday, you're like, what? What's Silent Saturday? Exactly my point. Theologians describe the day in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as Silent Saturday. Most of us didn't even know that. Why? Because if we're being honest, as we read through our Bibles and as we process the Easter story, that the Easter weekend, right? No one ever thinks about Silent Saturday. Saturday. In many ways, it is ignored by us. It is overlooked by us. I would actually argue that for for us as modern day Westerners, not only is Silent Saturday ignored and overlooked, I would say that many of us consider it unnecessary, right? Because as modern day Westerners, we're all about efficiency. We're all about time and getting things done quickly. So the the idea that God made people wait uh, a day, three days to to resurrect, to to come back, for many of us, if we're being honest, as as modern day people, that idea of waiting seems completely unnecessary. But the reason why I want to speak to you this morning about silent Saturday is because I believe that right now as a nation and as a church, we find ourselves in that very moment. We, Good Friday has already happened, right? Has already happened. The, the, the woundedness has already happened, but the worship of Saturday, Sunday hasn't arrived yet. And so I feel like we as a nation and we as a church, right now we find ourselves in a very long, silent Saturday. 
Think about what the original disciples felt. When they woke up on Saturday morning, they probably felt like they had made a wrong turn somewhere. They were walking with Jesus. They were on a journey with Jesus. And then all of a sudden they wake up on Saturday and they feel like they took a wrong turn somewhere. They feel like their journey had been detoured. They feel like their journey had hit a dead end. They probably felt like like their GPS had miscalculated and had took them somewhere where they did not want to go. And how many of us feel exactly that same way right now? We are in this season of waiting. We are literally in silent Saturday. And, and there's a part of us that feels like, man, what, how did we end up here? Did, did we make a wrong turn? Was there a detour? Have we hit a dead end? Where is God right now? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at Resurrection Sunday through the lens of silent Saturday. And so the title for my Easter Sunday sermon is this. He, God, is working in the waiting. He is working in the waiting. It might not seem like God's working right now. It might not seem like God is doing anything on silent Saturday, but what I need you to know on this Easter Sunday morning is that he is working in the waiting. Now, here's the thing. Last week, for those of you who've been following along, last week uh, for Palm Sunday, we looked at the theology of quarantine. And I talked to you about what it takes for us to have a quality quarantine. And then two days ago on Good Friday, we were talking about having perspective, that it's all about perspective. I would say that those two messages are connected, that the only way that you and I can have a quality quarantine is if we realize that it's all about perspective. What I would also argue now connecting it to this morning is that the only way we can have a quality quarantine is by realizing that it's all about perspective And nothing gives you perspective quicker than understanding that he, God, is working in the waiting. When you realize God is working in the waiting, it changes your perspective, which then results in a quality quarantine. And so that's the, that's the, 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 the premise that I am proposing today, that God is working in the waiting. And in order to prove that premise, what I want to do today is I want to look at that concept, that idea, under two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at man's waiting, and then we're going to conclude by looking at God's working. As we look at man's waiting and God's working, we will see that God is working in the waiting. So let's begin this morning by looking at man's waiting. Now, here's the thing. As as we jump into Silent Saturday... I would love on this Easter Sunday morning to read to you a passage about how faithful the disciples were on Saturday. I would love, it would, it would, make, it would be so much easier for me this morning to literally pick up a passage from the Gospels and read to you about all the incredible faith-filled things that the disciples did on Silent Saturday. But unfortunately, that passage does not exist because when you read through the Gospels, the disciples were nowhere to be found on Saturday. They weren't planning for the resurrection. They weren't preparing for the resurrection. They weren't praying. No, no, no. The disciples were MIA on silent 
Saturday. So out of curiosity this week, I went looking to see, is there any passage in the gospels that talks to us about what happened on Saturday? And to my surprise, there was only one passage in all the gospels that talked to us about something that happened on Saturday. But the activity that it describes, it wasn't the activity of the disciples. It was the activity of the enemies. It was the activity of the religious leaders. Look what it says in Matthew 27, verse 62. It says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember, don't miss that. We remember how that imposter, they're talking about Jesus, said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sorry. So, so don't miss this. Don't miss this. The, the, the only people that are working, the only people that are working on Saturday, right? Usually when you work on Saturday, it's considered overtime, right? The only people putting overtime in, the only people uh, getting paid uh, time and a half are the enemies, not the disciples. It's the bad guys, the enemies, the religious leaders. But here's what I find so fascinating about this, this, this concept of, of the only people working on, on Silent Saturday uh, is the enemies. I, I would argue that one of the reasons why waiting is so hard, one of the reasons why waiting is so hard is because in moments of waiting, like the season that we find ourselves in right now, it, it, the reason why it feels so hard is not just because of God's absence or his perceived absence, but it's because of the enemy's perceived presence. Think about that. I would argue, now I can't speak for all of you, but at least for me, from my perspective, I would argue that part of what makes waiting so difficult is that not only does it feel that God is absent, but in that very same moment, it feels like the enemy is very, very present. In this season, I can't tell you how many times I have read articles, how many times I have seen different things that are happening, and I am tempted to say, God, where are you? Like, like what are you doing right now? The, the whole world is, has stopped and is watching. If there's a moment for you to show up, if there's a moment for you to display your glory, this is it. And, 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 and at, at this very same time, at least from my perspective, it feels like the enemy is having a field day. There's all these people getting sick and dying. There's fear and there's anxiety and there's worry. And sometimes if I'm being honest, I sit there and I get angry and I think to myself, God, what are you doing? How long are we going to be in Saturday? When is Sunday coming? When are you going to do something about this? Right? And so sometimes what makes the waiting harder is not only God's perceived absence, but the enemy's perceived presence. 
And so it's funny that on the one passage that we have about Silent Saturday, the only people who were working, the only people who were uh, uh, doing anything were the bad guys. And it feels a lot like it does right now. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if you notice in the passage, but the, the, the Pharisees, the reason why they go to Pilate is because the Pharisees said, the imposter said, while he was still alive, that after three days he would raise. In other words, the reason why the, the enemies were responding the way they were responding is because they, they heard what Jesus said. And since they remembered what Jesus said, they wanted to make sure they had a plan in order to counteract it, right? But what's crazy is that what that means then is that the Pharisees had a better theology than the disciples. Uh, the Pharisees literally knew Jesus's words better than the disciples. Isn't that crazy? The enemy has a better understanding of God's word than we do. Now, some of you may be saying, well, maybe the reason why the disciples weren't preparing for the resurrection is because Jesus never told them. Maybe the reason why they're responding the way they were responding, let's give them some grace. Maybe the reason why they're responding is because they had no idea that Jesus was going to come back. Well, what if I told you that just in the gospel of Mark alone, Jesus tells them about his plan and about what's going to happen to him three times. Look what it says in Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them, the disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief, the chief priests and the scribes and killed and after three days rise again. You're like, okay, well, he told them one time, big whoop. What, what if they were distracted? Like what if it was windy out and they just didn't hear what he said? Well, that was Mark 8. The very next chapter in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus tells them again. Look what it says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, second strike. He's told them twice already. Again, we can maybe rationalize. Oh, they just, they just didn't hear. They just didn't hear. Hey, they just maybe didn't understand. You know, maybe it says that they didn't understand. So, you know, let's give them some grace. Well, the very next chapter, we've already read from Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark chapter 10, he does it again. And this time he gets even more specific with the details. Uh, Mark 10, it says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days, he will rise. Jesus told these brothers three times, 
in three consecutive chapters in just the gospel of Mark alone, Jesus tells him, he literally gave him the itinerary for the weekend. He said, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm, we're going to do this on Saturday. I'm Friday, we're going to do this on Saturday. We'll do this on Sunday. He gave him the itinerary ahead of time. And yet when push comes to shove on silent Saturday, the only people that were uh, uh, even reacting to the information that Jesus had given, the, the, the people who were acting like there was a possibility like he can resurrect, weren't the disciples, it was the enemy. That's crazy. And here's the thing, it's so easy for us, right, to, to look at these disciples and, and judge them, to, to look down on them and say, how, how could you doubt God's word like that? How can you, in, 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 in a season of, of waiting, in a season of brief waiting, how can you turn your back on God's word and completely forget what he said? Well, here's the thing. I would say that before we judge these disciples, I think we have to take a moment and realize that we are actually much more like these disciples than we think. You see, because the disciples, they had Jesus' words, but the resurrection hadn't happened yet. And most of the New Testament hadn't, hadn't been written yet. Any of it actually up to that point. So, so the disciples forgot what Jesus said, but before we judge them, I would say that we are guilty of the very same thing. Here's why. Because how many of us in this season, uh, we are behaving as if God died. And we're behaving as if God has no control over this situation. And, and how many promises in scripture do we find about God's presence, about God working? We went through Romans 8 a few weeks ago and we saw all the things that God is doing in times of suffering and pain. And yet how many of us in this silent Saturday, in this time of waiting, we are doubting that God is working. We, we are pretending as if he never told us who he was and what he would do. And so before we judge the disciples, we have to realize that we in our own silent Saturday, we are are guilty of the very same thing. He, and, and I would say we're even more guilty because unlike them, we have the resurrection to look back on. We have uh, all of the written word of God to lean on. And yet even in spite of everything Jesus has said to us in this moment, many of us are pretending and living as if Jesus never resurrected. And here's why. I can tell you why. Because we, and I, I can even speak for myself, I, I like to give myself the, I like to think that I am a thinker, that I am a, a, an objective person. I love reading books. I love learning theology. And so I always kind of hang my head on, on being, a, being a thinker, being objective. But you know what I would say? That, that many of us, we're not as objective as we think. And in moments of waiting on silent Saturday, in moments of waiting, I would argue that subjective feelings carry more weight than objective facts. That in moments of silence, in, 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 in Silent Saturday, in moments of waiting, I would argue that subjective feelings carry more weight than objective facts. And so we believe God is sovereign. We believe God is in control. We believe God has a plan. We believe that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. We believe that objectively as a fact, but subjectively how we feel day to day, moment to moment overshadows that. It outweighs that. Now, now let me give you uh, just an idea of what it would have been like for the, to the disciples to wake up on, on Saturday morning, Right? 
One of the things that's hard about uh, this, this, this cycle, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that cycle here in a second, but you have Friday, you have Sunday. So you have Friday, you have Saturday, you have Sunday. So on Friday, you are wounded. On Saturday, you are waiting. And then on Sunday, you are worshiping. So woundedness, waiting, and worship, okay? That's, that's, that's the cycle that we see. But, but if we're being honest, one of the things that makes Saturday so hard is that we're stuck in between these two extremes. You're, you're stuck between death and life. You're stuck between confusion and clarity. You're, you're stuck between uh, being a victim and being a victor. And so in that moment, it, it, it's a hard season to navigate. And so that's why I brought up that, that subjective feelings can carry more weight than objective facts, right? But, but think about what the disciples felt. They, they wake up on that Saturday morning. And if you think about it, they probably haven't slept for about 48 hours because Thursday night was when everything started getting crazy. And then Jesus was crucified in Friday morning. So they haven't slept for about 48 hours. And then even after Jesus gets crucified, many of them, we see that in the garden, they run away terrified because they don't want to get arrested by the, the Roman guards. And so these guys, these disciples, they, 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 they fall asleep at some point. God knows when they fall asleep on Friday night going into Saturday. They wake up probably late on Saturday. And, 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 and can, you, can you imagine the, the emotion that they felt? They, they probably felt like it was all a really bad dream. And then all of a sudden they wake up on silent Saturday and they realize that it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a nightmare. This actually happened. Jesus is dead. The religious leaders won. Can you imagine the, 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 the embarrassment? You, you've been following this guy for three years. You've been telling everyone who you know. In those days, the communities weren't that big. You're telling everybody who you know that this is the Messiah. You've left your fishing business. You left tax collecting. You've left all these things and you put all your eggs in this basket. No pun intended on Easter morning, right? You put all your eggs in this basket and then all of a sudden you wake up and he's dead. And not only are you feeling uh, the, the, the embarrassment of that and the shock of that, right? The aftershock of Jesus being dead. But then you think of someone like Peter, for example, the, the, the regret, the, the shame for how you behaved on that day. You, you feel like, man, I, you start replaying in your head what you could have done different, what you could have said different. The, the shame and the guilt and the self-loathing that these guys felt, the, the numbness of there, this cannot be true. There's no way that we've ended up where we've ended up. There's just no way. The emotions that these guys were feeling were real emotions. That's why I would argue um, later on in, in John 20, we see that the first people who show up um, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the tomb uh, were uh, uh, the women. Peter is nowhere to be found. And honestly, I can tell you right now that I would probably, if I would have reacted the way Peter reacted that on Friday night, there is no way that I would be at the tomb on Sunday morning. Because not only because I'm embarrassed, because let's say he did resurrect, I don't want to see the guy. But even more so, I don't think Peter thought he was going to resurrect. His behavior tells us otherwise, right? That he had no intention of ever going to see Jesus. He didn't think he was going to see Jesus ever again. But can you imagine that, that, that I think part of the reason why Peter doesn't go on Sunday morning is because even if there was an inkling, an inkling of hope, he just didn't want to be disappointed again. He just didn't want to be disappointed again. And I don't, I don't blame him. 
As a matter of fact, the women go to the tomb. They see that the tomb is empty. The angel speaks to them. And the angel says, go and tell the disciples that he is risen. They go back to tell John and to tell Peter. And then in John chapter 20, it says that John and Peter, they, they run as fast as they can to the tomb. And John, who's the author, goes out of his way to tell us that he got there first. What a guy thing to do, right? That he won the race. But, but John gets there first. And when they get there, they look in. And here's what's crazy, you guys. John and Peter, they see that the tomb is empty and you would think, oh, wait a second. Then that must mean that what Jesus said was true. He resurrected from the dead. But that's not what they do. It says in John chapter 20 that after they examined the tomb and saw that it was empty, they went back to the place that they came from. That's crazy. They didn't even think about the, maybe think about maybe Jesus resurrected. No, no, no. They're like, well, he, he's not here. So let's just go back to where we were. That's, they, didn't even, they didn't go looking for him. They didn't go asking questions. They didn't go investigating nothing. It says that they went back to the place where they were. Even in Luke 24, the, the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus comes and, and, and starts walking with them. And these fools have the audacity to say, yeah, uh, we're, we're heading back to Emmaus. So, you know, we, we, uh, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Yeah, uh, the, the Jesus of Nazareth, he died. And then, he, and then this morning we heard that his tomb was empty, but we're heading back. These brothers found out on Sunday morning that Jesus, they didn't leave on Saturday. They left on Sunday. They found out that his tomb was empty. And instead of staying around a little bit, they headed home. Come on, man. Come on. And so, so you see just how, how much emotion these men are feeling. And here's what's crazy. In John chapter 20, Peter, that same Peter that we said, saw that the tomb was empty, empty and then headed back to, uh, to where he was. When he gets back to where he was, Look what it says in John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is crazy, guys, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So, so get this. Not only do these brothers go back to the place where they were, but when they get back, they lock the door because they're still scared. They're still afraid. They don't know if Jesus is back. And so just in case, they, they, they close the door because they're more afraid of the religious leaders. They, they're still scared. Says so they lock the door out of fear of the Jews. Come on, man. Man, but that's exactly how we are. That's exactly how we are. We are still, ironically enough, behind locked doors, afraid of an enemy that cannot even hold a candle to Jesus Christ. We, we think about it. The, 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 uh, how, it's so funny how in this season, I don't know why it's so hard for us to believe that, that something invisible can be doing so much work, right? We, that, that, that in the invisible realm, there's a lot of work happening. Think about this. One of the things that makes the coronavirus so scary is that no one can see it. It's invisible. You don't know who has it, right? So when it comes to bad stuff, we can believe that there is something going on in the invisible realm, right? We can believe that a lot can happen with, when, when, when the eyes, with, with our eyes can't see it, but there's a lot happening, right? We believe that when it comes to the bad news, but we don't believe it when it comes to the good news because even though the coronavirus is working, guess what? 
God is working right now. He is working in the waiting. On Silent Saturday, God is working. He was working on that Saturday, and he is working on this Saturday. So if we have all the faith to believe that, that there's all this negative stuff happening in the, in the, in the uh, negatively, invisibly, why don't we take that same faith and realize that God is doing something in the waiting. He is working in the waiting. He is working in the waiting. You know, one of the things that I found out this week that I didn't know, I didn't know about this, that, that all throughout the Bible, God has been working in three-day cycles. All throughout the Old Testament, you see it again and again. He is working in three-day cycles. So you would think that the first time God works in a three-day cycle was on Holy Weekend, right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But what's crazy, and if the disciples knew the Bible, they would have known this, God has been working on a three-day cycle for a very, very long time. So I'm going to give you some examples from the Old Testament of how God worked in three-day cycles. Look what it says in Genesis 22. Verse four. Now, before I read it, let me give you this context. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac. And then as he's getting close to the place, they go up on the mountain and God provides an animal sacrifice so that his son does not die. It's, it's a picture of, of, of the gospel that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son, but one day the greater Abraham would have to sacrifice the greater Isaac in our place, which is a good Friday. But what's crazy is I want you to see how God has been working in three-day cycles since the beginning. Look what it says in Genesis 22, verse 4. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So him and Isaac are getting closer and closer to the mountain. And the Bible says that on the third day, they got there. On the third day, God provided the sacrifice. Let's move on. Genesis 42. Some of you may be like, oh, well, that's, a, that's, just, that's just convenient. That's, just, that's a one-off, right? Well, here's the thing. A little bit later in Genesis 42, we find the story of Joseph with his brothers. And in the passage, we discover that Joseph puts them in prison. And look at the day that they get out. It says, and he put them all together in custody for three days. And then it says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. So we saw it in Genesis 22. We saw it in Genesis 42, God working on the third day. And then look at the next passage. Exodus 19. Now in Exodus 19, God is about to give his law to the people of Israel. Genesis 20 is where we get the 10 commandments. But in Exodus 19, sorry, Exodus 20 is when we get the 10 commandments. Exodus 19 is where God is preparing them for the receiving of the 10 commandments. And he tells the people, I need you to get prepared because since you are so sinful and wicked, I need you to consecrate yourselves and prepare yourself for the giving of the law. It says, Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. They trembled. On the third day, God showed up. Look at the next passage. In Esther, many of you know the story of Esther. If you don't know, it's this, this Jewish woman who was put in a Persian uh, uh, kingdom and, and she has to stand up and, and intercede for her people. Again, playing the role of Jesus. She's, she's interceding on behalf of her people. She puts her life at risk so that they might be delivered. What's crazy is when Esther decides that she's going to go before the king, look what she says to Mordecai. She says, then Esther 
told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And then in Esther chapter five, verse one, literally the very next chapter, it says on the third day, Esther went to go talk to the king. And it was on the third day, don't miss it, that God gave Esther favor with the king. Look what it says in Jonah. Some of you know the Jonah story, right? Jonah is a a reluctant prophet that God has sent to go speak to the people of Nineveh. He doesn't want to do it. He tries to run away. And so he gets thrown off a boat and he is swallowed by a giant fish. Here's what it says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know what's crazy about the Jonah story is that Jesus Christ is the greater Jonah because we see in the gospels that the religious leaders want a miracle. The people of the day, they want Jesus to do a miracle. And Jesus says, the only sign I will give this generation is the sign of Jonah. He says the sign of someone going into the belly of a, of, of a, of a, of a whale and then coming out three days later. Jesus is saying, the only sign I'm going to give you is my resurrection because Jesus Christ is the greater Jonah, who unlike the original Jonah, who reluctantly went to the place where God was sending him, Jesus willingly went. And he then willingly was put in the belly, not of a whale, but in the belly of the earth. And three days later, Jesus Christ resurrected because Jesus is the greater Jonah. So even there in Jonah, we see a three-day cycle. Come on, church. But it's not done. Look what it says in Hosea. And Hosea is this prophet that God is speaking to. And look what Hosea says to the Israelites. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And then check this out. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Listen, Hosea is prophesying to the people of Israel and he is saying, listen, you're, you're, you're Israel. You're the people of God. You are the son of God in the Old Testament. And God, in two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us. But what's crazy is that we know in the New Testament that the greater Israel is Jesus Christ. Because like Israel, he goes through the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And he passed all the tests that they failed in the wilderness. Jesus Christ comes out of that test being the faithful and only true son of God, the the greater Israel. And what's beautiful is that he then fulfills this prophecy because on the third day, God raised him up. God has been in this three-day cycle for a long time, y'all, for a very long time. He is in the three-day cycle business. There's, There's trouble on the first day. There is triumph on the third day. And then in the middle day, right, there's trouble on Friday. There is triumph on Sunday. And then what we have in Saturday is time. There's a lot of time. Trouble, time, triumph. And on that third day, what we see through these passages is that on the third day, God provides some sort of redemption, some sort of rescue, some sort of revelation. 
and in light of Easter, some sort of resurrection. God has been in the three-day business for a very long time. The hard thing, if we're being honest, is that when we are in Saturday, sometimes we don't know that we're in a Saturday until Sunday shows up. But, but here's the thing. The reason why we know that God is going to eventually show up is because God already showed up. Not just in the Old Testament, but even more importantly, on Easter Sunday. See, what a lot of us do in times of waiting is we, we, the way we respond is we, we don't know what to do with waiting. We, 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 we don't have the, a proper theology uh, on Saturday. So what we do, some people, what they do is they deny it. And they, when in times of waiting, they, they're in denial. And then other people, what they do is they despair. So you have some people who deny the whole thing. And then you have some people who are in despair the whole time. The, the people who deny it have this false optimism, this, this wishful thinking, right? This fake triumphalism. The, the deniers in season like this, that what they're doing is they're minimizing the problem. But then on the other side, you have the people who are in despair and they're freaking out and they're terrified and they're scared. And what they're doing is they're not denying the, the problem. They're not minimizing the problem. The people who despair, what they're doing is they're minimizing the solution. So you have people who deny it, you have people who despair, but what we should be doing is we should be depending on God. It's not denial or despair. The biblical response is dependence, relying on God every step of the way. You know, one of the things that I said uh, a couple, last week, I think, is that cliches just don't work in seasons like this. And one of the cliches that really bothers me is the cliche of, hey, God is, he, he, he's never late. God is never late, but he is always on time. God is never late, but he is always on time. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. I can tell you what, God is never early. That's true. But never late, mm, I guess it's all about perspective, right? He's never late. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I know that Israel were the original people of God. But sometimes in times of waiting, I'm convinced that God might be Puerto Rican. All right. I, I'm Puerto Rican and I, I know what a Puerto Rican party is like. Uh, everyone shows up an hour and a half late. Now, when they get there, the party's popping. OK, don't get it twisted. But it, they just take a little bit to get there. I'm convinced that, that that whole phrase of God's never late, but he's always on time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I, I can't. I don't know if I can uh, salute that one. OK, I'm convinced God's Puerto Rican. He's going to take a while to get there. Remember, when he gets there, the party's popping, all right? And, and so uh, just remember that uh, next time you feel like God's taking too long. Here's what's beautiful, though, guys. Here's what's beautiful, though. In this season where the stock market has taken such a hit, right? The stock market has taken such a hit. There's all these stocks that are going down in value because there's this time of uncertainty. Listen, the only stock that hasn't gone down, well, let me not be over, I think Zoom is getting a lot of money right now, okay? Outside of Zoom, the only stock that has gone, and maybe hand sanitizer, outside of Zoom and hand sanitizer and toilet paper, the only stock that hasn't taken Taking a hit in this market in this season is the stock of the gospel. The, 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 the gospel, the stock keeps going up and up and up. Why? Because people are realizing that there's no hope in this earth. We have to look outside of it. And that hope is found in Jesus. The stock of the gospel is skyrocketing. As a matter of fact, I did a Google search last night and I found out that prayer, the word prayer is being searched on Google way more than it's ever had in the past. Way more. We found out the other day that Church Online, which is the platform that we use to stream our services, 
They, they, they sent out a report that more than ever, historical number of people are putting their faith in Jesus. Why? Why is this, the, the, the gospel stock going up? Why are people Googling prayer? Why are people coming to know Jesus? Because God is working in the waiting. He is working in the waiting. It might seem like nothing is happening on Saturday, but what I need you to know is that the gospel stock continues to go up because God is working in the waiting. And just because we can't figure out a reason for all this doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for all this. God has a reason and God is working in the waiting. So that is man's waiting. The second thing I want you to see this morning is I want you to see God's working. We've seen man's waiting and now I want you to see God's working. God's working. In other words, we, we've seen this, this silent Saturday through man's perspective. And what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at it from God's perspective. Because here's the thing, as we already saw in Matthew 27, uh, there wasn't a lot going on physically uh, in the world on, in, when, in, on Saturday, right? In the physical realm, there wasn't a lot going on. But just because there wasn't a lot going on physically on Silent Saturday, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot going on spiritually on Silent Saturday. God, everyone knows God worked on Good Friday and everybody knows that God was working on Sunday. But what if I told you that God was working on Silent Saturday? Spiritually, there was a lot going on in the spiritual realm. And some of you are like, hey, I know that he was working before that and after that. No, no, no. I want you to know that God was working in the waiting. On Silent Saturday, God was doing work. He was doing work. Now you may be asking, how, how do you know? How do you know that God was working on Saturday? How do you know that God is working right now in this season? Well, I'm going to get a little bit theological here for a second, but I'm going to explain to you how I know that God was working in the waiting. You know, one of the, 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 the I'm getting into deep theological waters here, okay? So I need you to put your thinking caps on. One of the things that, that theologians disagree about all the time, and there's this big debate, is where did Jesus go on Saturday? So we know where he was on Friday, he was on the cross, and we know where he was on Sunday, he was resurrected. But what was Jesus doing on Saturday? And there's a lot of debate. So I'm gonna give you my perspective. You might have a different perspective. There's a lot of debate, but, but I would argue, well, let me say this. One of the things that people assume because of the Apostles' Creed is that Jesus spent Saturday in hell paying for our sin. He was still paying for our sin. And so all of Saturday, he was in hell, in anguish, under torment. I actually completely disagree with that comment and that statement and that theological view. And here's why, here's why. Because at the cross, as we saw, for those of you who are here on Good Friday, at the cross, Jesus said, the last thing he said is, it is finished. He didn't say, I am almost done. No, no, no. He said, I, I got about 50% left. Let me go ahead and finish the rest of it. No, no. At the cross, Jesus Christ said the word teleos, telasai, which means it is finished. It's done. It's over. And, and what we said on Friday is that the reason why Jesus didn't have to go to hell again is because Jesus experienced hell on earth. We said that hell is the absence of God. And for three hours from noon to three, Jesus Christ experienced hell on earth. He took not just uh, an individual's hell, he took all of our hells in one. 
all the wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ for three hours straight. He had already experienced hell, which is why he was able to say it is finished. So then the question is, if he wasn't in hell, experiencing hell, then what was Jesus doing on Saturday? Well, I'm going to read to you a passage. It comes from Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, we have a a parable. And in this parable, Jesus Christ is talking to, he's telling a story about a poor man named Lazarus and a rich man and how the rich man mistreated Lazarus when they were alive. And then he says in the parable that they die. And in this parable, Jesus tells us about what happened to people before he died and resurrected. Okay. Look what he says. Look at the language Jesus used. He says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or some people call it Abraham's bosom. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far and Lazarus at his side. So, so get this. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is what scholars say. Before Jesus showed up, before Jesus died and resurrected, there was this holding place called Sheol. Sheol. And Sheol was a holding place that was divided in two. On one side of it, you had Hades, which is where all the bad people went. And then on the other side, or the people who didn't believe in God, that's Hades. And then on the other side of it was Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, which was where all the righteous uh, believers, Old Testament believers went, okay? So, so before Jesus died and resurrected, there's a place called Sheol, it's a holding place. You have on the one hand, uh, a pla- uh, one side of it is called Hades. The other side of it is called Abraham's side. Apparently, according to this passage, there was a chasm in Sheol between the two sides. But even though there was a chasm, you can see from one side of the chasm to the other side of the chasm, because in the passage it says that the rich man was able to look across the way and he saw both Abraham and Lazarus. That is Sheol, or what Jesus calls paradise uh, at the cross, which then brings me to my next argument. Jesus at the cross, he tells the thief, today you will be with me, he says, in paradise. And what many people assume that what he's saying there is, oh, I know what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying he's going to go to heaven. Well, here's why that, that necessarily doesn't mean that. He doesn't say today you will be with me and the Father. No, no. He says today you will be with me in paradise. And so it is quite possible that the thief was with Jesus when Jesus went down to Sheol. Now, there's other places in the New Testament that I don't have time to get into now, but Ephesians chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 3 that talked to us about what happened in that time. And Jesus goes down to Sheol. And again, there's different perspectives on this. And if you want articles on it, email me and I'll send them to you, okay? But, but Jesus, in light of Ephesians 4, in light of 1 Timothy 3, he goes down to Sheol in order to declare the victory that he had already won. And the thief couldn't be with him because Sheol was another word, paradise was another word for Sheol. Right? Jesus says, so that you'll be with me. So the, the thief could have been with Jesus as he was doing it. And he goes down to Sheol to declare victory. He goes down to uh, Hades to rip the gates off of Hades. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he was doing. He was, he was, he was conquering. If everyone thinks that Saturday was, a, was a, an extension of his humiliation. No, no, no. I need you to know that Saturday wasn't an extension of his humiliation. Saturday was the, the, the beginning of his exaltation. 
His exaltation started on Saturday. Jesus was in Sheol declaring victory, which is why, again, this is my perspective on how I read scripture, which is why in Matthew 27, which is the passage that we saw on Good Friday, it says that after Jesus resurrected, people think that the Old Testament saints started coming out of their graves when Jesus died. But if you look at Matthew 27, it says that after Jesus resurrected, Old Testament saints started coming out of their grave and started to reveal themselves to people in Jerusalem. Why? I would argue that the reason why that's happening is because according to Paul later on in, the, in, in, the, in his epistle, Jesus is the first from among the dead. He is the first fruits from among the dead. In other words, those Old Testament saints couldn't come back and get their resurrected bodies until Jesus did that first because he was the first fruit. But what I would argue in light of Matthew 27, and many scholars argue this too, is that the reason why people saw Old Testament saints is because they were, since Jesus had already gotten his resurrected body, they were getting their resurrected body and it was a preview of what Jesus is going to do one day at the end of time. It says, at the end of time, we're all going to meet him in the air and we're going to get our resurrected bodies. That moment on Resurrection Sunday was a, a foretaste of what's going to happen one day in eternity. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that absolutely crazy? So, so, so think about this. I, I don't want you to miss this, church. Please don't miss this. this on, on earth, it didn't seem like anything was happening. Physically, it didn't seem like anything was happening. It was radio silent on earth. And, 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 and from man's perspective, it looked like we were losing. It looked like everything was being, everything was over. Everything was done. It was the, 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 the waiting was being wasted. But what we see is that Jesus was working in the waiting. On Saturday, Jesus was working. He was putting in overtime. That's what Jesus was doing on Saturday. He was working in the waiting. So get this, on the very day that the disciples were admitting defeat, Jesus Christ was declaring victory. Come on, church. Right now, how many of us are admitting defeat? And right now on Silent Saturday, Jesus isn't admitting defeat. He is declaring victory. That's what Jesus is doing on Silent Saturday. He is working in the waiting. He is working in the waiting. And in one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. The apostle John, he sees an image. He sees Jesus in all his glory. In verse 17 says, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he, but he, listens, he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then he says, and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know, one of the Greek words that people just overlook in the gospels is Jesus uses the word paradidomai again and again. You see the word paradidomai all throughout the gospels. What does the word paradidomai mean? It means to be delivered up, to be handed over. Actually, one of the passages that I read from Mark, that's the Greek word. It says, I will be delivered up to the Romans or to the Jewish leaders. The, the Greek word there is paradidomai. It means to hand something over. That's what it means, to deliver something up. And so when you look at the gospels, it almost seems like Jesus has no control over what's happening. He, he, gets, he, he gets delivered up to the religious leaders, paradidomai. Right? They, he, they, he, they hand him over to religious leaders, paradidomai. Then the religious leaders hand him over to the Romans, paradidomai. And then the Romans then hand him over to be crucified, paradidomai. 
But what's crazy is that at the end of his life, Jesus, he breathes his last and says that he, he gave his soul, his, he gave himself up to the Father. And the Greek word there is paradidomai. But here's the question, guys. How does Jesus get the keys to death in Hades? I would argue that Jesus Christ got the keys, not on Friday, not on Sunday. He went to get the keys on Saturday. On Saturday, Jesus Christ, he went to Satan. He ripped off the gates of Hades. He ripped off the gates of death. And he looked at Satan and he said, paradidomai. Paradidomai, baby, hand me over those keys. They don't belong to you anymore. Paradidomai, they belong to me because I am in control and I am the one who is working in the waiting. Listen, I don't know how much longer God has us in this season, but what I need you to know is that God is working in the waiting. We are wounded on Friday. We wait on Saturday and we worship on Sunday. But what I need you to know, if we know that God is faithful and that he's going to come back, he is going to resurrect, he is going to work on Sunday, then what I would argue is that we might be wounded on Friday, but we can worship on Sunday, even on Saturday. Even though we're waiting on Saturday, we can worship like it's Sunday because we know that Sunday is coming. I don't know how long God has us in this season of waiting. I don't know how long God has us in this silent Saturday, but I can tell you, I know for a fact that Sunday is coming. God will be faithful in this smaller Sunday because he was faithful with the greater Sunday. Come on. And so if that's true, if we know that resurrection's coming, if we know that God is working, then we can worship him right now. We don't got to worship him on Sunday. We can worship him on Saturday. And if that's true that he is working in the waiting, we can worship him on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday. We can worship him right now because he is working in the waiting. God is working in the waiting. I want you today, whoever you are, wherever you are at, whatever's going on in your life, I want you today to look at Saturday through the lens of Sunday. I want you to look at silent Saturday through the lens of resurrection Sunday. Why? Because I am convinced more than ever that God is working in the waiting. And if God is working in the waiting, then guess what? That means we can worship in the waiting. If he's working in the waiting, then we can be worshiping in the waiting. Hey, listen, if you're here today and you are still considering the things of Christianity, this is your first time ever hearing an Easter message or maybe your first time in a long time, man, I want you to know that God right now is working in your waiting. God has used this season of waiting to force you to look outside of yourself. And I want you to know that God loves you, that God has a plan for you, and that Jesus died for you. And that right now, Jesus is working in the waiting because it is because of the waiting that you are tuning in this morning. And so what I pray is that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus, that you would look at Saturday through the lens of Sunday. So if you're here today and you want to place your faith in Jesus, I would love for you to text High Point to the number 97000. And we would love to connect with you, pray with you, and help you see what resurrection looks like. For everyone else, 
please know that God is working in the waiting. And the reason why we know he will be faithful with this smaller Sunday is because he was faithful with the greater one. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we want to thank you that you are working in the waiting. That even though we find ourselves in a silent Saturday, we know that Sunday's coming, that Resurrection Sunday's coming. And so as a result, we can look at Silent Sunday through the lens of Resurrection, Silent Saturday through the lens of Resurrection Sunday. God, I pray for the people here who want to place their faith in you. I pray that today would be the day that they wouldn't waste the wait, that they would worship in the wait, that they would place their faith in you today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the resurrection. And we praise you for all that you did for us and that the work is finished. Thank you, Lord. Amen and amen.